We praise you, Father, for the words that we can sing with confidence that your kingdom is forever, that you rule with sovereign authority over the powers of this world and powers there are, powers that assault our soul, that assault our world. And Lord, we rest in your sovereign purposes and in your reign and pray that we would be reminded of that today and that we would bend our minds, our wills, our very affections toward your word and toward your truth to your church. We pray that through the Spirit of God that you would work within each of our hearts to settle us, to still us, to allow us to face you, to know your truth and to walk in its light. And for those who know not Christ as Savior, we pray in their behalf that you would open their eyes to truth, to righteousness, to your rescue, and to your grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. December of 2019, a megachurch pastor in California announced that God had given to him a word of prophecy. God told him that Donald Trump would win re-election. After the election results were tallied, the pastor apologized on social media for his false prophecy. Now one might wonder if that wasn't a pretty good time to reconsider that church's understanding of prophecy. That might have been a good place to go. But sadly, the only outcry was not biblical, but political. People liked the prophecy. It's what many of them wanted to hear in that large church, so they protested against the pastor's prophecy. No, they protested against the pastor's apology. So he apologized for his apology, promising to repost it if Biden's victory stood. But if Trump was, by some unknown calculus, reelected, the pastor made this promise. Hold on to your wigs here, Eden Baptist. If my prophetic word turns out to be right, chew on that for a while. If my prophetic word turns out to be right, I will do the chicken dance in my spandex. I Words fail me. I, I don't know what the chicken dance is. I'm not sure I could identify spandex, but I know I don't want to see a pastor dancing in them, or whatever it is. If my prophetic word turns out to be right... We could profitably critique that phrase for some time, but moving on, I share this story to highlight really a serious temptation that we all face as God's people. We naturally believe messages that tell us what we want to hear, and even when they are not what God has said. All of us. It's true of every one of us. We naturally believe messages that tell us what we want to hear, even when they are not what God has said. To heed the genuine voice of God demands the spiritual discipline of carefully weighing and often rejecting declarations that are exactly what we want to believe. In God's word, his authoritative truth must rule in our hearts such that we do not yield 
to any influences outside, to cultural expectations, to prevailing circumstances, to political leanings, to sensual cravings, or any other influence that presses us to believe what we want to hear against what God has actually said. This tendency, this sinful bent is highlighted in an unforgettable narrative from the annals of Israel's monarchy recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 18. We find as the narrative unfolds, first of all, two kings that form a military alliance. Verse 1 of 2 Chronicles 18, now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor and he made a marriage alliance with Ahab. Let's get our bearings here for just a bit. But Jehoshaphat was the godly and gifted, wealthy, powerful king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Chapter 17 summarizes nicely his impressive success as king. Ahab was also very capable, but a godless king in the north, in the uh, kingdom of Israel... Now, an age-old practice of kings was to solidify their position through marriage. A friendly king who may one day become your rival is less likely to invade your land if his daughter lives with your son in his palace. So Ahab gave his hand, gave, gave the hand of his daughter, Athaliah, in marriage to Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram. So the kingdoms were fairly friendly at this point in time. There was an alliance between them, even this marriage alliance. And certainly Jehoshaphat was in a very secure position. But something is troubling Ahab, and Jehoshaphat travels north, descending from Jerusalem to visit Ahab in his capital city in Samaria. Verse 2. And after some years, he went down to Ahab in Samaria, and Ahab killed an abundance of sheep and oxen for him and for the people who were with him, and he induced him, he pressured him to go up against Ramoth-Gilead. Ahab, king of Israel, said to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, will you go with me to Ramoth-Gilead? He answered him, I am as you are. My people as your people, we will be with you in the war. So you see the scene here. Ahab holds this lavish feast for Jehoshaphat, then presses him to ally with Ahab against the kingdom of Syria. Now, Ramoth-Gilead was a fortress, had a fortress. It was a town. But it had a fortress situated at a strategic pass on the eastern edge of the Jezreel Valley. What this meant is that this pass provided Syria with direct access to the heartland of Israel and to Judah. So this city also was well positioned along trade routes from all four directions. And so it was in both kings' interest, militarily and financially, to secure Ramoth-Gilead for Israel. So count me in, says Jehoshaphat, and an alliance is formed between the two neighboring kings. But Jehoshaphat is a godly man. 
There are some questions about why he did what he did at times, such as this chapter, but he was a godly man, and he wants to know what God thinks about this alliance, what God thinks about this battle plan. He should have asked God a lot sooner, I think is quite clear, but he does at least ask. And in verses 4 through 27, we find the main body of the narrative Uh, And observing here then that two kings seek God's will throughout these verses. The first segment, we find lying prophets that tell the kings what they want to hear. Verse 4, And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first for the word of the Lord. Now understand, Ahab hates the word of the Lord. He hates God. He is serving his own gods, his own way. This narrative is the third and the last of major confrontations recorded in Scripture between Ahab and the prophets of God. But Ahab needs Jehoshaphat's military support, and so he concedes, kind of. Verse 5, Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, 400 men, and said to them, Shall we go to battle against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, go up, for God will give it into the hand of the king. That's one prophet for every chair in this auditorium. It's a fair number of people. All saying the same thing, gathered before the king's throne at the city gate. And I can imagine Ahab, at least in spirit, saying, Isn't that wonderful news, Jehoshaphat? Did you hear what God is saying? A brief historical note here. Three years earlier, Ahab was about to be crushed by Syria's army, and he knew it. The handwriting was on the wall, as we say from Daniel. But a prophet of God came to inform Ahab that he would actually defeat Syria against all expectations. You can be certain whoever that prophet was, was the talk of Samaria after that visit and after Ahab indeed did defeat Syria. How exciting to enter before the throne of the king, this despondent king who knew that it was all over for him, to enter before him and assure him in his despondency, you will conquer. And he did. Somehow he defeated Syria by the hand of God. I don't think I'm reading too much into the text. It's a bit of conjecture, but I think these 400 prophets want a piece of that action. How wonderful to come to the king and tell him what he wants to hear. To assure him, and we have the precedent of three years later, God crushed the Syrian army for us, for Israel. I'm sure they didn't allow that thought to go through their mind for us, Israel, who is in rebellion against God. But here they are, 400 assembled, these official prophets of Israel, assuring Ahab. Isn't this wonderful news, Jehoshaphat? Well, Jehoshaphat's looking around and saying, I'm not feeling very comfortable here. I've got, I'm getting a lot of skin in this game. I'm sending my army north. I'm sending them against Syria. And I'm not feeling so comfortable as I read the room here, so to speak. So verse 6, Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord? 
of whom we may inquire. Another prophet of the Lord, that is, these prophets were not true prophets of God. He knew that, and it concerned him. They were telling Ahab what he wanted to hear, but Jehoshaphat knew that they did not speak for God. He's in in an alliance here that's pretty tricky. But he does at least stand up and say, what does God think? Verse 6. Verse 7, the king of Israel then said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him. For he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Always evil, because Ahab was always evil. Micaiah was always against Ahab because Ahab was always against God. And Ahab is brutally honest about all that, but Jehoshaphat pours some water on that flame and says, now Ahab, it it can't be that bad, can it? Really? Uh, Bring the man in. Let's see what he has to say. And so verse 8, then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, bring quickly Micaiah the son of Imlah. While the messengers now off fetching Micaiah, the court clowns continue to carry on before the king. Verse 9, now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones arrayed in their robes, and they were sitting at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets were prophesying before them. Ancient thrones that are carved into stone may still be found today from this era. That was just what was normal, was that they would set these thrones outside by the city gate, that is the entrance into the walled city, and at the threshing floor there was much room, and so these 400 prophets, you can see the kings there arrayed in their robes, and the prophets around telling them what they want to hear. Verse 10, and Zedekiah Zedekiah, the son of Kanana came for himself, uh, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall put the Syrians, you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied this way, and they said, Go up to Ramoth Gilead in triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Animal horns were symbols of royal power. Zedekiah, he must have gone to some work to get them made out of iron. It was a most impressive object lesson in the absence of flannel graph there. But he took the, these two horns and said, With these you will gore Syria. You will push them away. You will defeat them. You can almost hear the large crowd of prophets cheering and heralding his, uh, their approval. Ahab's adrenaline rises and the the victory was actually going to happen again. It was so exciting to think of what it would mean to have Ramoth Gilead in the fold again. Now while they're having this pep rally at the entrance of the walled city, while the uh, prophets are filling Ahab's ears with the message he wants to hear, the messenger assigned to fetch Micaiah uh, provides a free lesson in public relations And he supplies some talking points to Micaiah, trying to help him out here. 
Verse 12, And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them. And speak favorably. He knows Micaiah's reputation as well as Ahab does. Micaiah, listen, join the other prophets. Here's what they're all saying. Tell Ahab what he wants to hear. Please, could you just cooperate for once? Verse 13, but Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what God says, that I will speak. What the king wants to hear is irrelevant. Micaiah will only speak the objective, external, authoritative word of the living God. With the caveat that he's good for a little sarcasm now and then. So they usher Micaiah before the kings, and I imagine a hushed silence falls as he begins to speak to the king, verse 14. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall I refrain? And he answered, go up and triumph. They will be given into your hand. I've been told what to say. I'm telling you what you want to hear. 400 prophets tell two kings what they want to hear. What will Micaiah say? Well, he speaks with sarcasm. Go up and triumph. It will be given into your hands. But the king gets it. He understands Micaiah. And he says, verse 15, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? He knows he's in a sense mocking him. He's playing with him. And the king doesn't appreciate it. It's probably another long pause as Micaiah collects his thoughts. The sarcasm in his voice is now gone as he speaks in dead earnest tones. Verse 16. And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. Well, as predicted. Predictable as ever, Micaiah never says anything that the king wants to hear, it seems. And Ahab realizes he's that master, and Micaiah's prophecy is far from assuring Verse 17, and the king then of Israel says to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? Yes, he had, but Micaiah is not finished. Verse 18, and Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. You've been hearing what you want to hear from your false prophets. Hear the truth of God. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing on his right and on his left. Kind of like it's going on right here. But in heaven. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab, the king of Israel, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? 
And one, can I add here just for understanding, and one demon, one evil spirit said one thing, and another evil spirit said another before the throne of the Lord. Then, verse 20, a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And God on his throne said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put, this is Micaiah now looking directly at Ahab. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster concerning you. So Micaiah is granted a vision of God's throne room. Let's assert what the Bible says very clearly, that God cannot do evil, and He never tempts anyone else to do evil. But the demonic realm does present itself before God, who grants freedom to entice these false prophets to lie to Ahab. God has everything to do with everything. Though He never sins, He is never Yielding, he never yields the throne of the universe to Satan. The demonic realm can only do what God permits. Why does God permit this lying spirit to go to Ahab? The reason is that God's patience with Ahab's sin has run its course. And this is how God providentially, normally works. To work through the sinful temptations of demons, to work in the sinful choices of people, to ultimately bring about what is good and glorious to His name. It's a big vision of God. He's in control on the throne of the universe. So Micaiah's proclamation of the truth against this sizable assembly raises the ire of a false prophet named Zedekiah. In verse 23, Then Zedekiah the son of Kenanah came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, Which way did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? I... It's hard to know exactly what he's saying, but something like, you claim God gave you a vision of the spirit realm. Well, what spirit of God rightly directed me to rebuke you, striking you, you lying piece of garbage? That's kind of the effect of it. You dare speak to the king this way in the presence of all of us who know the truth? How dare you talk to the king of Israel like this? Who do you think you are? Reminds us of those who struck Christ when he told them who he was at his trial. Verse 24, and Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. The Hebrew is a room within a room. We would probably just call it a closet. 
Zedekiah, you're going to be cowering in fear in a closet very soon. When you're there shaking with fear for your life, remember this. Remember this moment. Mark my words, Zedekiah, and remember this day as my prophecy comes true. This unusual display of courage, this rebuke to all the prophets and the kings. He's more than King Ahab can tolerate, and he loses his cool at this point. Verse 25, And the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son. And say, thus says the king, put this fellow in prison and feed him with meager rations of bread and water until I return in peace. And Micaiah said, if you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, hear all you people. All you who have been telling this king that he will triumph, telling him what he wants to hear, listen to the word of the Lord. And remember, if this man comes back to this city in peace, I'm a false prophet. Did you notice there in verse 25, it says, take him back to Ammon. That is, apparently they fetched him from prison. It was, uh, it apparently had a mailing address there as a prophet of the true God in a false, amidst the false worship. But he takes him back to prison. Ahab and Jehoshaphat fail then to heed God's word. And they do, in the end, what they want to do, listening to the prophets who tell them what they want to hear. And it does not end well for them, certainly for Ahab, as we see then in this third section, that one king is lost. Verse 28, So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead, and the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself, and they went into battle. It's really not clear in this narrative what Jehoshaphat is thinking. Uh, From the start to finish, it's really confusing, many of the choices that he makes. But right here, you wonder if he's lost his reason. Two kings heading into battle, one gets to wear battle armor and blend in with the troops, and the other goes into battle wearing his robes. I mean, which king do you want to be? Jehoshaphat is entering this battle like a peacock among chickens. It's going to be really clear who he is. And as one would expect, then, verse 30, Now the king of Syria had commanded the captains of his chariots, Fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. Find the peacock among the chickens and take it out. Verse 31, as soon as the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, it is the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out, and the Lord helped him. God drew them away from him, providentially. For as soon as the captains of the chariots saw that it was actually not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. He came that close to death. They could have trained their arrows on him and taken him out but for in god's gracious mercy to jehoshaphat crying out they recognize that he's actually not the king of israel i know they apparently didn't expect uh, jehoshaphat to be there 
nor did they ultimately care. It was the king of Israel that they were after. It was Ahab they wanted to take down. But Jehoshaphat gets that close to death. But they turn from him, verse 32. Then, 33, what about Ahab? A certain man, but he apparently knows who he was, drew his, at least not at this point in the telling, but he drew his bow at random. And he struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore, he said to the driver of the chariot, Turn around, carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king of Israel was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until evening. Then at sunset he died. So a soldier randomly fires an arrow into the air. He's not apparently aiming at anyone. The Hebrew in his innocence, just mindlessly shooting an arrow, hoping it finds some target somewhere. But it's like a heat-seeking missile. That arrow breaches a tiny gap in Ahab's armor and deals him a mortal blow. Ahab did not return to Samaria in peace, as the false prophets assured him that he would. He never saw Samaria again, arriving only as a corpse. While the false prophet Zedekiah cowered in a closet and Micaiah prayed someone would release him from prison. So you have a king going into this battle who's dressed in robes and stands out, is spared. Another hiding among the soldiers, an arrow finds that little place and kills him. It's far more than a fun story. In the garden, Satan told Adam and Eve what they wanted to hear. That they could be like God. That they could challenge His authority. That they could rival God's glory. And to this day, the spirit of the age influences each of us to track in the same way. It's in us in sin and we need to recognize it. We're encouraged by the false prophets of our day to devise our own plans to determine for ourselves what is right and wrong and what is the best course of action for us to take. And under that worldly influence, we we all find it tempting to believe messages that say what we want to hear even when they are not what God has actually said. It comes along a lot of lines, and it's far more prevalent than we may note. But it sounds something like this. An internet post assures me it's okay to rob God. It's okay to ignore His call in my life. It's all right to forsake the assembly. Or, my friends assure me that in my situation, it's okay to lie. It's okay to steal. It's okay to break the law. Psychologists say that living in an unhappy marriage is mentally toxic. I simply must leave my spouse. 
This article makes so much sense. It's wise to move into my boyfriend's apartment, to live together for a while, to see if we're compatible for marriage. Not to jump into marriage and get into all of these ties that then have to be broken. Possibly. All kinds of people confirm what I feel inside, that if I'm attracted to a same-sex relationship, I have to be who I am. Or my sociology teacher says that everyone disobeys and dishonors their parents. It's just part of growing up. It's not a big deal. Or I know God's will for America's political future, and I'm finding so many people online that agree with me and assure me that that day will come. On and on we can go. On the one hand, justifying sin... On the other hand, wasting our lives in foolish pursuits while turning a deaf ear to what God has revealed. And this narrative is meant, I think, largely, at least in part, to press us to understand where we must go for truth and how we must relate to this world under the authoritative, external, objective Word of God. We live in a culture that is encouraging us to find everything in ourselves, to rely upon ourselves, to rely upon our reason, to rest in who I am, and to know what is right for me. We're reminded here as we're given a vision of God in His throne room to get on the page with the God who rules sovereignly from heaven's throne, who can take an arrow's flight and poke it right in a little gap in a king's body and take him out. To get on the page of the God on the other side of the scale, from the minute to the glorious, who knows the future who has given us His Word concerning that future, given us promises about that future, and given us all that is sufficient and all that is needed. As we know, Christian, Jesus Christ came to earth to die in our place, to pay the judgment of our sins and thus to rescue us from the futile ways of thinking and living of those around us who depend on self, their own ingenuity, their own reasoning, their own conclusions, believing whoever tells them what they want to hear. Christ has died in part to deliver us from that way of life. The redemption Christ won for his people on the cross breaks the power of sin. It produces a new love, not a love that runs around wanting to hear whatever we wish to hear, but a love for what God's Word says and the desire to conform my life to that life-giving Word. It is not hard to find Christians very attuned to what is being said on the internet and very dull to what God has revealed in His Word or to knowing it better and honoring it more. As the Spirit works His fruit in our lives, we will grow increasingly disinterested in being right, in getting our way, in controlling our circumstances and the people around us, 
in hearing only what we want to hear. As the Spirit works within us, we will grow more and more oriented to pleasing our Father who rules from heaven's throne and by honoring His Word in our lives and trusting His promises, which are yes and amen in Christ. As the Spirit works within us, we will grow more and more oriented to pleasing our Father by honoring His Word and following the example of our Savior who said, I always do those things that please my Father. Not, I always do those things that please me, but that please my Father. May that be our orientation. May that be our commitment as we consider this passage. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for the reminder of your sovereign rule that you know the end from the beginning and that you do steer your people sufficiently through the word that you have revealed. May we come to terms with this. May we rejoice in this reality. And may each one of us guard our hearts against these sinful tendencies. Teach us, Lord, I pray, to trust your way and to be knowing, to to be learning your truth and knowing what you have said to your church. Lord, I pray for those who know not Christ as Savior and ask that you would continue to draw them. And Lord, that this passage today would be an encouragement to us to that end. Through Christ we pray. Amen.